Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. I am really excited about our panel um, of illustrious tech experts over here. Um, this panel actually has been a long time in the making. Um, as, as you guys know, electric is the future, um, and a very exciting topic, but a lot of the electromobility that we see today in across the globe is really luxury vehicles. And so this panel was really started as a way to broaden that conversation and say, okay, how can we expand access to electromobility to a much broader population? What does that look like from the tech perspective? What does that look like from the government perspective, the infrastructure perspective? And so we're going to try to uh, dig into all of those here as part of this panel today. Um, so I'm going to introduce each of our panelists briefly so you know who's on the stage. Then I'm going to turn it over to them to give brief introductions of themselves and, and their ideas of expanding access to electromobility. Uh, and then we'll dive into a, a structured Q&A, but then would really value your questions as well, um, which we'll turn to towards the end of the panel um, to, to broaden the conversation. Um, so I'll introduce myself too. So I'm Annie Hudson. I am the head of partnerships for charging and infrastructure for Volvo Group, for Volvo Energy. Um, and so I'll be talking a little bit more about the heavy duty, duty sector today. Uh, to my left is Will Graylin, who's the CEO of Indigo Technologies. Uh, he is a serial entrepreneur. He's a board member of a number of Fortune 500 companies, a former military officer, and an MIT alum, which uh, I am as well. Then next to Will, we have Toby Russell, who is the co-founder of Shift. Um, he, as well as a serial entrepreneur, um, but has also spent time in large public and private sector institutions, working to drive transformation ranging from USDOE to Capital One, um, and it actually has a doc doctorate from Oxford, even though you wouldn't be able to tell it from the accent, just to warn you. And last but not least is Candace Sheath, who's the CEO and co-founder of Vio, which you'll be hearing about today. Vio was founded in 2017, and it is, was built into one of the country's leading micromobility platforms. Uh, and she's a graduate of Purdue University as well. So I'm going to turn it over to our panel to give you a little bit more of their background, uh, and then we will dive more deeply into the subject at hand. So Will, take it away. Great. Thank you so much. Really. Happy to be here with uh, esteemed colleagues uh, talking about this very important topic. And um, for me, um, I really like to think about um, electric mobility in a much more holistic way. And when we think about holistic way, uh, you know, this stems back from my days at, as a nuclear submarine officer when we're out, you know, 75 days in a row out at sea. Um, we have to be self-sustaining. So everything from... Um, basically making our own nuclear power to making our own electricity, our own water, our own oxygen, and being able to scrub our own carbon dioxide. So when we think about sustainability and, and electric mobility, accessibility is absolutely key. Now, one of the problems in terms of accessibility is just, um, you know, how do you make these vehicles, um, whether they are micromobility or whether they are the kind that carry people and boxes around, um, how do you make them accessible and affordable? And I'm going to talk a little bit about how um, this little company out of uh, MIT called Indigo Technologies, um, with a technology invented from Professor Hunter out of MIT, that really solved a fundamental problem to make vehicles lighter, yet smoother, roomier, and more desirable. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that. And I'm going to use a few slides. And if you don't mind, I'm just going to uh, stand up. And then I'm going to let uh, my colleagues take over uh, after my presentation. All right. So accessible, clean mobility for our planet. 
what this means for us is, is how do we get vehicles much more affordable to, um, to have vehicles that um, use what we call smart wheels. What the heck is a smart wheel in the first place? Uh, I'll share a little bit more about that. But ultimately create not dinky little vehicles that nobody wants to drive and feels like a golf cart, but truly next generation vehicles that feel like you're on a magic carpet ride, yet really, really affordable. Now, let's talk about the problem. The problem that we have today is most of the vehicles, as, as Annie said, um, are way too expensive, and they're born out of the existing gas vehicle architecture. When you start heavy and you have to put a big battery onto it, and you can see the F-150 pickup um, adds another 700 kilograms, that's another 1,500 pounds when you turn it into electric. And our grid as a system level is not designed to support this kind of, of uh, charging. So that means it takes a very long time to charge and people have range anxiety so they decide to put in a bigger uh, battery which is much more expensive. And this problem um, is not going to go away anytime soon because our grid is wired for you know, typically what we call level two infrastructure. So how do you go from very heavy vehicles? The only way to, to do it is you have to lighten the mass. And the way that we broke through to lighten the mass is that we created smart wheels that are no longer taking up space, as you can see on the left there, um, between the wheels, so you gotta make the vehicle bigger. Our motor actually sits in each wheel. But not only does it rotate, it also has the ability to move up and down to be able to sense the road condition to uh, keep that ride very, very smoothly. Much like that skier can go up and down in terms of uh, being able to absorb bumps and, and potholes. So this capability of our motor on the uh, bottom right allows us to now make a vehicle that's smaller on the outside, but roomier on the inside. Therefore, we can make it lighter. That means you can use a smaller battery. A smaller battery is less expensive. It's also lighter in itself. So you can create a whole new vehicle architecture that is different than traditional vehicles that are out there. So even my Tesla, you see a big bonnet in the front. And the reality is we don't have an engine anymore. Why are we putting a big bonnet in the front? Why do we need to have the vehicles that big and that heavy? So our vehicles are actually uh, have more interior cabin space and yet it's still safer. We still have the crush zones to be able to meet uh, safety standards. And to make it even safer, here's what's cool, is that our agility of each motor that has uh, contacts at each, uh, each wheel allows us to detect so that we can swerve and maneuver uh, away from accidents much easier and faster. So all of this basically means that we can now create an ultra-efficient next-generation vehicle, what we call LUVs, light utility vehicles, not SUVs but LUVs, which by the way, incidentally, was born out of World War II. The first LUV was a Jeep on the battlefields of World War II because of necessity to be efficient. Now, we designed this vehicle first to, um, to service where the miles are being driven the most, which is ride share and delivery. These are the folks that are driving 50,000 miles per year, whereas the rest of us mostly, you know, we park it in the parking garage most of the time, and, and we drive maybe 10,000 to 14,000 miles a year. So how do we give access to them, and how do we give them, for both delivery and rideshare, a center driving position so that they can get out on the left or the right? So if you're double parked in the middle of a city, you're not blocking traffic, you can get out on the right in between two parked cars. 
and look at the leg room that you have if you're a passenger of an Uber or a Lyft. And, uh, and look at the view, passenger view from the second row. That's how we utilize that extra space. And even the third row is very, very spacious because we freed up all of that cabin space with the motors and the wheels. So now you can see the two sliding doors and the ability for the wheels to actually kneel for uh, ADA accessibility and for loading of packages. So this kind of um, solution has a much lower carbon footprint in terms of the construction of the vehicle and the utilization of the vehicle. And when you compare it to, let's say, a Hummer EV, one Hummer EV has 212 kilowatt hours of battery. That means you can make five of our flow indigo EVs. And when you put it into the hands of five um, drivers of rideshare or delivery or gig economy workforce that relies on this as a tool, guess what? They're driving 250,000 miles of clean miles as opposed to maybe 10,000 miles, um, you know, carrying, going back and forth to grocery and so forth. So look at the carbon footprint that you can reduce when you use our solution with the same amount of lithium and material that, uh, that's out there. And that's fundamentally what we're talking about in terms of utilizing the smart wheel technology to lighten the, um, lighten the vehicle and create much more efficient vehicles. Now, there's one additional problem beyond the hardware. It's about the software, which is even at $29,000 per vehicle, it's still not very affordable for all of those who are driving on our behalf. They need clean vehicles. They're using used cars, used gas cars that are polluting. So how do we give them access so that they're not losing money as they're driving for us? So we know that the average cost is 58 cents per mile today as uh, the average person driving a gas car. So my other company called OV Loop is building a super app. And what a super app is, it's a private wallet that you own your own data to. And when you own your own data, including your own driving record, your own credit history, your own work history of, of 4.9 stars and 5,000 trips on Uber, why don't we give you access to these vehicles without money down and let you drive it in cost per mile basis? And that's the kind of way that we can reduce the cost of insurance as well as accessibility to the vehicles themselves through data and through intelligence. With that, we believe we can change uh, the planet for a more accessible, clean mobility that's now within reach. I'm going to turn it over now to, uh, to Toby. Actually, Will, if, before Toby, if I could just ask one quick follow-up question. Um, which is, so it seems like accessibility, is, as you would define it, is redesigning the car to make it more affor affordable overall to own an electric vehicle. Is, is that both the vehicle itself or is it the cost of energy over time? Um, how, how do you see that as from an accessibility standpoint of making it more affordable for somebody to own a vehicle? It's, it's a great question and it's actually both. And both can be solved by creating a vehicle that is designed to be lighter because when they're lighter, you use less copper, less aluminum, less lithium, less manganese, less cobalt, and it's more affordable up front. And when it's lighter, you also use less energy per mile, and you have less maintenance costs. Replacing those tires are based primarily because of the weight of the vehicle. So if you have a lighter weight vehicle, guess what? You can make your tires wear much longer, 
and you have less pollutant on the tires also in addition to less pollutant from the energy that's required to move that vehicle. It just makes no sense for somebody to come deliver my Chipotle in a 4,000-pound SUV. Wonderful. Okay. Toby, take it away. Hey, everybody. Thanks for coming out. My name is Toby. Um, I come at this with the perspective of a few different things. I spent time inventing, in a lot of ways, the first uh, rideshare system called Taxi Magic. I jokingly call it Netscape of the Uber space. Uh, uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. I spent some time at the U.S. Department of Energy and most recently building an online uh, auto sales uh, machine. So I've been thinking about mobility for a while and wanted to present a perspective on, hey, what is the future of personal mobility, particularly as relates to uh, the kinds of vehicles that uh, Will was talking about. And I think Candace is going to give us a great perspective on micromobility that is, is a critical part of that conversation. So uh, historically, we're starting with a world where, especially in the United States, vehicles are individual. People like Will tend to own a car. Those cars, as Will mentioned, sit idle about 95% of the time. Most of the time, the car is doing nothing but just sitting. And third, those things represent about half of our oil consumption and about 15 to 20% of our carbon emissions, which means there's a huge opportunity to change from that basic concept of how we get around. Um, I, I'm gonna describe three major factors and technologies that are coming to the table that I believe are gonna influence the direction of the next generation system that makes EVs and transportation accessible. The first, as I alluded to, was the concept of networks transportation. The idea that you can log onto a network, request transportation, and have that available to you. Uh, yes, that did exist with taxis at one point, but it was not a widespread, easily accessible uh, system. And the advent of mobile computing basically has allowed us to create fairly sophisticated transportation networks. The second element is the advent of the electric vehicle. Um, many people are saying, hey, we're, we're not there yet for adoption. Those of us who lived in California see like one in 10 cars on the road being already an electric vehicle, but then you go to other places like the Midwest and there will be close to none at times. So uh, Nigel Bohr had a saying, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. And the concept of, of electric and what Will is describing as a next generation vehicle, not just a car with a different motor, but a computer on wheels, that is rethought and redesigned, a fundamentally different set of capabilities than, we, than what we've seen in the past. And I think that that um, is an important element in this, in this transformation. Uh, again, these are not just the same vehicle with a different mode of, of propulsion. It's a fundamentally different technology. The third piece is we're gonna see flowing into the space autonomous capabilities. Uh, and I think this is gonna be a really important element. These vehicles, these computers on wheels, are going to drive themselves. Um, and folks say, well, that's a long way off. We're talking decades. Uh, I don't believe that. I think within a decade, we're going to have mass deployment of fleets of vehicles driving themselves. You're already seeing those in test and pilot form for those of us that have popped around in, in parts of Arizona and in San Francisco, uh, open and pilot program to the public with folks like Waymo. Um, you already are seeing crews bringing uh, active um, users into uh, self-driving vehicles. These things exist, and that is going to be a, a, a massive vector of technology coming to the table here. And the fourth part that I think is really important that we've seen is the advent of a shared economy. The idea that people can do things like Airbnb, take a fixed asset, an expensive asset, and start utilizing it over a lot of different people. You, you might have seen this coming when I said, 
95% of the time, most vehicles sit empty doing nothing. Well, if you had an apartment sitting empty 95% of the time, what would you do with it? More likely than not, you find a way to rent it out and get utilization on that thing. And people are becoming accustomed to the concept of networks that allow sharing. And so um, I actually would posit to you what we're going to see is a future where vehicles are individually owned, but they are autonomous driven, they are electric, and each owner rents that thing out on a network for others to access it. And I think that that's actually how we're going to get to universal access. It's going to transform the nature of auto finance. It's going to transform the nature of how people think about owning and accessing vehicles. And it will allow anyone, particularly in an urban center, to hail an autonomously driven, electrically propelled uh, ride uh, via a shared network. Now you might say, well, wait a minute, why wouldn't like an Uber or a Lyft own all those cars? And the answer is network effect. Because they're capital intensive, almost by definition, more people who are not the individual network will exist owning a vehicle than the individual network could own. Which means when you have a network effect at play, i.e. the winner is the one that can get the most vehicles, which begets the most passengers, which begets the most vehicles, a flywheel, the winning play is to look more like a Visa or a MasterCard rather than trying to be a verticalized uh, a verticalized own everything kind of uh, method or model. So what I'd posit to you is that the future of personal transportation, particularly in the, um, in the vehicle space, is going to be shared, networked, electric, and accessible to everyone through that networking system. I'm going to hand it off to Candice uh, to give us a totally different perspective. One more follow-up question for you, Toby, before we hand it over to Candice. Kind of similar to Will, can you talk a little bit about kind of the, the element that you see as the key driver for accessibility as part of this vision? Is it the sharing that allows greater access, or what, what do you see as kind of the, that core driver? I think there are two critical, critical pieces here. Um, the electric means computer, and the computer gets you the autonomous aspect, which radically reduces the friction to sharing. And so I think that shared aspect is huge because your utilization goes way up and your ability to put, put assets on and take them off of the market goes way up. And so, yes, the sharing is what gets you that accessibility because, one, anyone can access a shared thing, but two, people who couldn't have afforded a car before are now not buying a very expensive asset to sit idle for 95% of the time. So I can have a car and I can finance it by putting it out on the network the sharing itself can finance the vehicle. And that's what I mean by a, a fundamental rethink of auto finance, where that thing is a um, cash-generating asset as opposed to a black hole that is a depreciating, um, idle, very expensive thing. And that transforms who can own and who can use the vehicles in a pretty fundamental way. Yeah, and one of our themes of today that we talked about as a panel in advance is really rupturing our concept of, of the future of transportation, which isn't just a stepwise change from our current vehicles to a, a sequence of similar electric vehicles. I think that's a really interesting perspective on that. And I think that is also a perfect segue to uh, our, our final speaker, Candice, and I'll let you take it away from there. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Toby. And good morning, everyone. Thanks for coming. My name is Candice. And I started a micro-mobility company named Vio back in 2017. And to date, we have provided like tens of millions of trips on scooter and bikes in over more than like 50 cities in the United States. And 
today, like when we are talking about electric vehicles, we typically mainly focus on electric cars by default. And when we are like focusing on and we are planning around it to address uh, decarbonizing our transportation system. So today, I would love to share there's actually more effective and more impactful way to approach it. Stats actually shows 50% of our car trips in urban areas are actually less than three miles. And 40% of all trips are actually taken by cars with only one person inside. So here is actually our opportunity to change, to convert the car trips to two-wheelers. And in fact, the revolution on the electric two-wheelers are actually happening. So as you all can see from the data here, so in 2021, there are 275 million of electric two-wheelers in operation at the same time globally. So by number, uh, the electric two-wheelers are the most widely adopted vehicle in the world. And combined together, these vehicles are making significant impact because like every day, they are, re they are displacing more than the use of more than one million barrels of oil every day. It's surpassing what the electric personal cars, van, trucks combined. So because of this very significant insights, um, we are inspired to be on the mission to end the car dependency and making the clean transportation accessible to all and make a big impact for our, to solve our climate crisis changes now. And one of our solutions today is to uh, replace the car trip with shared model and we lower down the barrier for people to get access to electric vehicles by sharing it, not owning it. That is the first approach. The second approach we have is that we don't believe in one size fits all solution. So that we provide a very diverse fleet portfolio to ensure our product and our service are able to meet everyone's needs in the market. In the past six years, um, thanks to our in-house design and manufacturing capability, we are able to roll out various of models of micro-mobility vehicles in the past few years. And one of our most popular fleet I would like to highlight is our sit-down version of scooter. And the success of it is largely due to its increased accessibility for our women riders. And also, it provides people who also want to go travel for a further, farther distance. And for this year, uh, we are actually rolling out a new product type. It's also the industry first, which is the two-seater. The goal for the two-seaters is to further improve the accessibility for micro-mobility. For example, with the two-seater, people with physical limitation, or people just cannot balance well, or people simply they're under the age limit, of 18 to use share micro-mobility service now, they can be the passenger for the vehicles we have and still enjoy the rides. And these are some close shots we have for the vehicle. Um, 
we just want to share, we not only care for our riders, and also we are actively communicate with the non-riders on the street, sharing the streets for safety purpose. And we truly want to create a vehicle that is on the road for everyone. At the end, I really want to share some photos about our riders. And we're very proud to share and also serve a very diverse group of our user. And we are truly executing our strategy on we all right core value, which means like no matter who you are, how old you are, where you want to go, and what is your trip purpose, you can always find a VO uh, to meet your needs and also get you where you want to go. To me, I would say the future of transportation should be fun, sustainable, and inclusive. Thank you. Thank you very much. And one quick follow-up question for you too is I, we had a really interesting conversation right before the panel on um, reaching out not just to your current uh, groups of customers, but also kind of thinking beyond that. Um, can, and I, I feel like that's a really important part of accessibility um, is not just thinking about the people that are the immediate users, but also other users that, that you can incorporate onto your platform. Could you talk a little bit about how you guys approach those products? Right, so how we approach this product is micromobility industry is still very young. And we don't think the current form factor actually are able to serve everyone. So that is the reason why in the last few years, we have been actively asking us, like, who is our user group? Who we haven't served yet? So like every year in every market, we conduct our user survey and trying to understand like, who is the demographic? Use what kind of vehicle type? What is their income level? And how we can approach um, our product to actually to meet the needs for the greater like scale of people. So that is the reason why, for example, for our sit-down scooter Cosmo, we discovered the needs based on our pilot back in 2019, Chicago pilot. At, at that time, we only have standard scooter in our portfolio. And we find out like more than 60% of our users, they are males. So to me, like that is a very shocking number and that is wrong. And so we reach out for people like why you don't ride and a lot of feedback coming from the women. And they said, I typically go to work with heels. It's really hard for me to stand on, on this like tiny single board and I typically have back. It's very hard for me just to hand my back in the front and I felt like I would trip if there's any chance I'll hit something. And there are also people, they grow up with bikes. So for them, it's more natural and seems safer to be on something they can sit, but not with higher level of gravity. So that philosophy encourages us to think broader and think who are the writers we left out. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. So I'm going to take the moderator's prerogative to add my two cents briefly before um, asking our panel a, a series of, of follow-up questions. Um, so I'm with Volvo Energy, which is a relatively new organization within um, Volvo Group, with trucks, buses, and construction equipment um, that is really founded to drive sustainability forward um, for the trucking, the busing industry. And one of the reasons why I find this panel so fascinating is you've heard the word accessibility over and over and over again today, but in many different contexts, which is one of the reasons why I've been diving into that. 
And so um, I today, representing the heavy duty industry, wanted to, to think about it not just in terms of accessing electric vehicles, making them more affordable, but also in terms of um, accessibility, making it easier and more sustainable for you to get from point A to point B. And I think there are a lot of ways to have that conversation both inside and outside of the electromobility conversation. Um, and from our perspective, electrifying public transit is one great way to expand um, access to electromobility. Um, electrifying buses is, uh, can reach a, a very broad population. Or perhaps it's a matter of redesigning cities so that they're more walkable and you can get your goods delivered by an electric truck. Um, and so we have a number of electric trucks on the market and we're really trying to drive that future forward in terms of thinking about access to what you need to do um, beyond just taking your personal vehicle to get there. So that's just another uh, definition of accessibility to add to the mix. Um, but panel, I, there are a number of things that we could dive into here. Um, but one of, I think, the really interesting things is that we're all actually talking, it, it seems all self-explanatory, I'd say. Um, the solutions that you presented make a lot of sense, but they are fundamentally a, a rupture of today's understanding of mobility. And so if you could give out two pieces of advice for how we can actually start getting to the vision that you presented, um, I would ask what, what would those two pieces of advice be and who would you give them to in order to actually move this forward? Um, so maybe we can start the opposite order this time. Candice, if you have uh, two pieces of advice that you'd like to share. Sure. So um, for micromobility, our typical partners are cities. So we need to work with the city and deploy the micromobility program on the ground for, to serve you all. So I will say more practically, like one of the two advice first is that for city, we do want to encourage them to look, like ensure the accessibility of the program is provided. Meaning um, the program or the micromobility installed in the city need to have a diverse model. So we ensure the, the ridership, the rider type are sustained. And the second part I will say is digest the number a little bit more um, and follow the num follow what numbers tells you because different we have different city New York is completely different than like St Petersburg in Florida and people might have different uh, preference in the demographic conversation in the cities are also different so what we find in the past is that different demographic different component of the, the city actually entails different usage of different like model of micro mobility fleet we're seeing. So the second advice I have is um, just work with the city, follow the number, and pick the combination that makes the most sense for your local community. And one follow-up question on that is, um, I know cities often have limited resources. How do you guys approach that? Because cities do play a really important role in trying to broaden access to exact sustainability, to mobility, to their population. What, what is the role of tech in supporting a city with limited resources? Great question. I think the good thing about the suggestion I just mentioned is it's already happening. And as vendor, as an industry, we heavily assist the cities to make the right decision because we have the data and we help the city to analyze the data and help to understand like what exactly is needed for you. So just to uh, lessen their workload and get to the answer. Wonderful. Toby, what, what advice would you give the world? So I, I have, there's sort of two, two thoughts that I would share. One is uh, prepare to embrace change. And the second is never forget why we're doing that. Uh, so on the first one, both for government regulators and for individual consumers, the future of mobility is going to be, like, fact, radically different 
than the last 50 years. And I think it's in everyone's interest, and we'll talk about the why in a second, in everyone's interest to say, wow, okay, we are going to be accessing and designing and regulating in a fundamentally different way in the next two and three decades than we did for the past, really, century plus. And I'd say brace for and, 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 and um, actually embrace that change. Uh, be it a local government that's uh, trying to enable a micromobility solution or autonomous vehicle pilots or charging station deployment, change is going to be the norm. And so it's a let's, let's embrace and run with that rather than try to say, well, let's just keep it the way it was. And then the question is why? Um, I think there's two big reasons. We have a massive climate problem that we need to change. Uh, our current transportation system is, is fossil fuel driven and in order to exist in the future, particularly when we're a population of north of six billion and heading on in, into, the, in, into the realm of like seven billion people on the planet, we gotta rethink how we're fueling that transportation. But importantly, and this is a little bit of my, my bent, we also have to think about the, the externalities of that fossil fuel beyond just the climate impact. Every day that we drive in a vehicle that uses gas, petroleum-driven product, we are funding Russia to invade Ukraine. And that's not unique in history, but what we see is um, the, the classic Dutch disease, the number of uh, oil autocracies and certain natural resource autocracies that exist actually defeat our ability as a, pop, as a, as a, as a species to be self-governing. It causes tremendous concentration of power among few when you have uh, deep dependency on those kinds of natural resources. And so diversification to things like solar, wind, et cetera, that are, that, are, that, are, that are more diffuse and more human innovation driven rather than natural resource driven is pretty critical to the way we live and govern ourselves in the future. So uh, embrace change and don't forget the why. That is really interesting. I th the, your first point, especially about embracing change, it fascinates me that um, a lot of the problems here aren't the innovation itself. It's actually opposition to to change, basically, um, from governments to industry that are just used to things happening a certain way. Um, but I did want to ask is, what do you see, so you said embrace change, be open to it. So what's the driving factor to actually make this future possible? Is that technology? Is that um, government funding? We'll talk about government a little bit more later, but what, what do you see as the driver that where other people should be embracing that change? So, so I feel bad jumping in on this one before Will gets okay. to his, get his two, two pieces of advice. Is that oh. I, so right, um, I think fundamentally, I mean, you guys saw my, my kind of view on the thing. I think technology is uh, the, a key driver of change, but technology can't do it. We have to demand and we have to ask for, uh, we, we largely have to be saying we want to get from here to there. And then technology is going to be our enabler. And um, the, and it, when you look at the way I described it, like I'm saying, hey, I think shared networks are critical. Well, shared network technology can't cause sharing. People have to trust and people have to want to participate uh, in that kind of system. Um, you know, it, it also, I know it sounds silly, but I, I have to believe that running, uh, for example, a micro-ability network, you have to believe that people aren't going to take and throw scooters in rivers. Like, that would be a problem. It breaks the whole system. So there, there, there is something beyond just technology. There's, there's, there's common purpose and a sense of us wanting to get to the, from here to there as a group. And I think that, that that awareness in addition to the technology is really, really critical. And I think that that helps us embrace the technology and drive to create the technology more when we understand the purpose behind it, like what we're trying to do collectively and, and how we're trying to achieve that. So I think those are the two, the two real enablers. 
Wonderful. That actually might be a perfect segue for you, Will, to, to offer your two pieces of advice. I love it. I love it. I love uh, the holistic system level thinking that uh, that's here. And I totally agree that um, um, technology is is the advancement towards where we need to go based on the why. Um, but it's accessibility to te- the technology that's key. So... Um, so how do we get to accessibility of the technology? That requires actually psychology, which is this resistance that, um, that's typically pervasive. We human beings don't like change unless it's forced upon us. So it's the innovators that are out there um, embracing change and pulling the, um, the industry. But it takes a lot of people, especially as something as big as, as transportation, and changing the way that we're looking at transportation. Um, and I still think that going back to the why is really important, even within technology. Because when you look at technology, you have to ask, well, why are we building cars that are so heavy? Why are we um, you know, putting, um, putting uh, uh, vehicles that, um, that's out there that's not affordable, that is hard to charge, and, uh, and makes it hard for people to adapt? adopt. So if we focus on changing the psychology, and I'm talking about um, giving advice to uh, auto OEMs, you know, these folks are like, uh, they're on an aircraft carrier, and it's much harder for them to change, even with the face of uh, more nimble players like Tesla uh, taking their market share, even then it's harder for them to change. So next week I'm going to be in in Detroit uh, with two of the largest uh, OEMs, um, hoping that we can share with them um, the vision that we have that I just shared with you and letting them have access to our technology and just say, hey, you know, you guys have the plants, processes, and people. You guys can also take advantage of this technology and get on the trend to solve for the why and the bigger why of, of uh, you know, us moving to energy independence. So um, the last one is is giving advice to government and investors. Because without investment, which is really the flow of monetary energy, companies like us cannot just magically turn as great of an invention we have. We cannot cross that chasm from invention into innovation. And that requires a lot of capital and a lot of support that says, you know what, we believe in this vision, we believe in the why, and we believe in the technology. Now we're going to make the accessibility to te- technology available through resources and funding. Well, that actually is, is a really important point and one that I wanted to dive in more deeply in, dive more deeply into, which is the role of government in, are we, one can say, picking winners and losers or really supporting this transition, what, how exactly they should approach something like this and what the optimal structure is. And Toby, I was wondering, as somebody that's worked in government, if you could talk a little bit um, to the role that you see um, based on your own experience and um, working in tech as well, of, that you, you think government should play in this and actually bringing us to this new future? That's a, that's a, a big and really important question, Annie. Um, to step back a bit, uh, I think that there has been a trend in the United States to really resist the concept of what we would call like industrial policy. We, we, we've hated the idea of pick winners, pick losers, etc. Uh, whereas you look at a country like China, 
they decided around like 2009, 2010 that they were going to become a leader in solar and poured massive subsidies and massive focus into that area and became the leader in, in solar uh, globally in the, in the last decade, decade and a half, no, like hands down. Um, and I would almost describe those as two extremes of the spectrum. One area where we're like, well, we're not going to pick winners, and one where you're like, it's solar and nothing else. <laughs> and I think that there is a role, and I think we're beginning to see this with uh, things like EV credits and, and the kind of, almost like a new industrial policy, in a sense, in the U.S., where we're not as much needing to just pick winners and losers and be all in on a thing, but have a point of view. And so I would say I think it's important for us to have a point of view and say we do not want half of our oil consumption flowing into uh, vehicles. And if we were to eliminate half of our demand for oil, it would be transformative from a climate and a geopolitical point of view. And I think it's okay for us to take a very strong point of view on the why and say we want to get from here to there. And then from a regulatory and, as Will mentions, funding point of view, uh, create, create opportunities to get uh, real innovation in an applied fashion without you know, government dictating winners and losers. So I think that there is an in-between of we will have no industrial policy or we will be you know, a, a dictatorial Chinese-style uh, Chinese solar deployment policy. There, there's an in-between that we need to be navigating. It's not easy, it's messy and it's hard. But again, it, it comes back to like remembering the why we're doing this and getting that, that more middle ground is gonna be pretty critical. Um, I wanted to send a quick warning that, that I'll be turning to the audience for questions in about five minutes. So if you do have questions, feel free to come up to the mic up here and um, we'll get to those at some point. Um, and by at some point, I mean, I promise we'll get to those. Um, but I did want, I think the government conversation is particularly interesting in the context of infrastructure because when one's talking about electromobility, you're talking about obviously the electromobility itself, but then you also need infrastructure to support it, um, which is some of it exists, some of it needs to be built out, some of it might we don't even know about for future innovations related to electromobility. And so I was wondering if each of you could touch a little bit on the infrastructure question and, and how you see that. Um, if you're looking, if you think we need to be working towards solutions that are infrastructure light to avoid that necessary investment and additional cost, um, or if there's a, how should governments, how should companies be um, approaching this question? Um, so maybe Will, I can turn it to you first. I think it's a, it's a very big and important question, and it ties into um, some of what Toby talked about in terms of geopolitics. Um, every war, major war, has been fought over energy. And, um, and when we think that it's a zero-sum game, um, the reality is not. But we're just not investing in the right places. When we think about you know, how we used to derive energy by you know, hunting whales and, and getting the, the fat off of oil to, to, to burn and then later on digging it out of the ground, now we have all different kinds of energy, yes, solar and wind, but certainly also nuclear, that is absolutely abundant and much safer than the, the politics that uh, makes us think that, that it's not safe. So starting from the source of energy that we talked about, um, then to the distribution of energy, which is the grid itself. And, you know, I believe that 98% of, of um, all charging infrastructure is going to be level two for the foreseeable future. And they're low cost to implement. And if you make that, uh, those plugs available, um, people will use them. And we know that changing the infrastructure for high 
speed DC to DC fast charging is much more expensive. And to trench in megawatts of power into you know, New York City, forget about it. It's just very, very difficult. So you've got to plan way ahead. So the source of energy, distribution of energy, and then the use of energy, which is the vehicles themselves, you have to make them much more efficient. For us to be carrying around tanks uh, going back and forth uh, just because we think that, um, you know, other people have a big SUV, I should have a big SUV, it makes no sense. So the efficiency of use of that energy, and when we can look at the why and how we um, execute that, we're going to be much more efficient, much I feel like it's, it's much more uh, abundance, and think about the global economy much less as this scarcity type of uh, mentality, and we should be thinking more about how um, we as, as a species, because we all live on this planet. Um, when you go out to the moon or the space station and you look down, there's no borders. It's just our globe. So that's the way that I think um, uh, our government should be thinking about it. Uh, and, and we as citizens, we can have a choice of, of looking at the kind of character uh, of the people that we elect to office and help them think about... Um, you know, this holistic way of why. That's a fantastic answer. And um, I think one of the really interesting things about um, talking about rupturing the future, as we've, we've all been talking about, is um, in a sharing concept, there's a lot more drive towards efficiency of the overall system. Um, and I think one of the, the quirks that we face today is the, the human quirks of human behavior with people wanting excess power um, just for comfort that they don't actually use. And so I think it's uh, very interesting to think through this, this future that is shared um, and that is much more optimized as a whole because then we can actually optimize the integration of the, the power of the vehicle and the infrastructure to actually get it to its location um, in a much more effective way. Um, but before we turn it over to audience, um, Toby, Candice, and do you want to add two cents on the infrastructure question? Sure. So infrastructure is a very important topic for micromobility. But the beauty of micromobility is that it's, it has less weight, and it needs less energy, and also it needs less infrastructure. So in order to scale up micromobility, there are a couple ways the government can do it fast. First of all, on the infrastructure is to provide a safer environment for people to utilize two-wheelers in the city. It could include building more bike lanes, especially protected bike lanes, uh, building more parking boxes, building more location for people to get access to transit station easier with the providential parking for two-wheelers. The other side, it can be also infrastructure light solution. So, to example, one in Seattle. So, starting in early 2020, Seattle actually lowered down their downtown speed limits from 40 miles per hour to 20 miles per hour. So, it actually creates uh, a safer environment for bikers, micromobility users, and also pedestrians to be out and not relying on uh, the cars. And the car drivers also are realizing it's a waste of time for them to sit in the traffic and they will explore alternative solution for their trips. The other example is in China. Uh, back in 2000, China actually banned all the electric, uh, actually banned all the gasoline-powered motorcycle in order to reduce uh, the climate impact and also the noise impact for the cities. So starting then, it actually creates a market for electric uh, two-wheelers and 
like make it take off in like Asian markets. So those are some like very light infrastructure approaches the cities can take, but have huge impact for people's attitude and also behavioral changes. Thank you very much, and, and Toby? I'll be really brief. The only thing that I think I would add to that is there's tremendous potential for electric vehicles to be significantly additive to the grid. Uh, the sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow, but when those things happen, and you want to capture that energy, where do you want to put it? You want to put it in a battery. And if you've got a network of electric vehicles, it's a great place to sink energy that you might not want to use and a great place to draw from energy. So I think there's tremendous potential for grid smoothing that will allow us to not have to do things like turn to gas plants for peaking as frequently. And I, th I think we should think about the transportation infrastructure increasingly, uh, and kind of as, as well as looting, as part of our energy and infrastructure. And there's the, that, it's going to be very additive if we can get that thing right. Yep, very much agree with that as uh, somebody that works on electric trucks, which will have a lot of that power and have a, a lot of ability, and buses too. The time that they're actually sitting there, um, there's a lot of potential there, and reusing the batteries from... Um, from old trucks. So uh, we only have a, uh, 10 minutes, and I am very sorry, audience, because I'm sure you have fantastic questions. Let's dive right in. Maybe we can take two at a time. Go ahead. Very good questions. I'm excited about this. Um, well, maybe we'll take the first one first. Blockers for regulatory blockers or other blockers for actually making your visions a reality? Um, biggest blocker is just funding and um, capital. And, and the problem is people don't know which um, EV company is going to be successful and which one they should back. And unfortunately, there are just you know a hundred plus EV companies. Everybody's sprouting out, but if they don't have the right kind of differentiation and invention, um, it's very hard to compete against the Teslas or the BYDs that have scale and have already been there. But in order for an emergent of a um, new technology to take root. We need to be able to have smart VCs and smart uh, investors and smart government officials to say, you know what, out of all of this, based on the first principles of why, we're going to back um, this technology and we're going to give it fuel for it to grow and blossom. So fuel is actually, believe it or not, that energy is, is the most limiting factor and not so much, um, not so much regulatory uh, blockers. And we're going to look at manufacturing locally here in the United States. And the good news is there are lots of manufacturing plants that are sitting idle because they can't generate the kind of demand that, um, to compete against the likes of Tesla. So we're going to utilize those excess capacity and, uh, and have our vehicles be built in those places rather than trying to create and, and rebuild things on our own without, uh, without the need to do that. Other panelists, do you want to add two cents? Sure. So um, for us, I would say like more infrastructure building and also better forward-looking policies uh, and pl urban planning are very crucial for our industry. Um, to Toby's point, like the world will be very different 50 years from now. We need to embrace forwards. And when we look back, when Tesla was funded in 20 years ago, the world is very different now and then. So two-point, it's just infrastructure and policy making sides. I might uh, jump in and, and to answer your question is, I think um, 
it's a really exciting time right now because the the traditional value chain is being totally disrupted. And so it used to be this is a utility, this is a, a OEM, etc. Um, and there are certain. I think that a lot of people are dipping their fingers into different parts of that now, um, and they have different strengths, different weaknesses, etc. But I do think that um, vehicle OEMs will play a major role in this in the future because of the data collected. Um, and that's something I'm already knowledge of the status of the battery is huge and actually being able to build a storage solution of the future or even understand kind of what its current state is to be able to be reused in a truck. Um, and we're talking about sustainability, you need to know that history of, of um, the battery itself. Um, and then as we were talking about, it actually plays a, both the vehicle itself and reusing those batteries for future storage solutions can actually very much revolutionize the stability of the grid, which is one of the big issues that we're, we're talking about here. So I, I do think that there's a major role that um, vehicle OEMs have to play in that. But wonderful. I will take the next set of questions. Two again, plus a bike. Great question. Much appreciated. Uh, and we'll take the next one. Actually, maybe the next two, and then we will dive into all of them. Wonderful. And the last question? Maybe we can start with that one then, Candice? If... Sure. So thanks for the question. So for the micromobility CD selection, we are a little bit different than the other vendors in the in the market because we really focus on the program sustainability and also financial viability. To us, it's very important to ensure that the program itself, in order to be a long-term transportation solution, you need to be sustained for another 20 to 50 years so that a city planner can actually seriously take micromobility into consideration to their next 20 years uh, city urban planning plan. So just to start there. So our criteria to serve, to like enter the city is typically choose by its population density, understand the needs for commuting trip, transit trip, and how we can supplement the transit trip and how we can actually replace uh, the last three miles trips in the urban areas. So those are our um, current criteria. And we have a very diverse portfolio of cities. So we can always compare the performance, the ridership in our portfolio of cities against the future cities we're entering to ensure the visibility, the viability of the program, uh, ensure the ridership. Because at the end of the day, the more rider, the more ridership, the, the better we can champion for ourselves and also kind of quote unquote demands for changes on the road. Toby, well, I want to turn to you guys for kind of thinking the first question about the, the cost of vehicles and how that's coming down just to get a sense of how realistic you think those projections actually are and how much they are making sure that the power stays with the OEMs of anticipated low costs. Um, but I did want to touch the question about um, shared infrastructure, which I think is a really interesting one. This might not be answering your question directly, but um, I've obviously a lot of experience with trucks and that is very different from the, the charging needs of cars. And so ideally we could build one infrastructure that works for both of them, but if you think about the needs of a truck, um, especially the efficiency of the charging needed, because you have 15 minutes, it has to work. Uh, currently, car charging only works 50% of the time, so you can't really do that for trucks. Um, and so it really has to be separate infrastructure. So I think one really interesting question behind the scenes is then looking at the grid itself and making sure that there's equity um, of building out the grid to make sure that all the potential uses of electricity are met. 
from electric bikes, which is, I, that's a fantastic um, example of things, to um, trucks, and some of them are less sexy than others, and some of them might have quieter advocates, but really making sure the governments think about the structure of society that they want to build and where you're going to have the biggest impact from a sustainability perspective, um, and making sure that there is that, that um, kind of background infrastructure behind that. Um, but we're running a little low on time, but you guys can chime in on any of those questions, but I would love to hear your, your thoughts about cost as well. I think what I'll do is I'll address the, the question, the first question regarding uh, the dollar per mile or $2 per mile, which is way too high. Um, we are talking roughly 58 cents per mile in the United States. Now, if you put it in perspective, we have 3 trillion, roughly, miles that are driven each year with a T, trillion. So when you multiply that by almost a dollar a mile, that's a lot of money that's that's uh, being being wasted and the only way that you can actually reduce the cost as we talked about is to make um, efficiency of the vehicles um, and utilization of the vehicles uh, much higher now one part of the cost is depreciation it is a big part of it but the other part um, is obviously fuel maintenance and don't forget insurance and the insurance has substantial and the only way to reduce insurance costs is you've got to have data about who the driver is and how to help that driver become safer. Because 5% of all insurance, uh, or I should say 90% of all insurance claims are actually coming from 5% of the drivers who are getting into wrecks. And if you're not um, a good driver, maybe you shouldn't be on the road creating what's called the tragedy of commons for everybody else. So if we can look at it holistically to attack it from multiple angles on the efficiency and the lightweight of the vehicles, of uh, accessibility and sharing of that vehicle in terms of utilization rate, and the data of uh, being able to, uh, to know who the driver is and reward the drivers that are driving uh, more safely, then you can reduce the cost to, yes, less than 45 cents, less than 30 cents um, when you can get all of those factors solved. Wonderful. And Toby, final word here? Very similar structure. And there are four parts to the cost. The person driving the car, the physical machine, the fuel to drive it, and as Will said, the insurance and financing that goes behind it. The single biggest cost reduction will be the elimination of a driver. So having a vehicle drive itself is going to take out the biggest part, which is the human being that sits in that thing. From there... The insurance piece, of the, if we can get to predictable behavior on the part of machines, you'll reduce that long tail of the, of, uh, on the insurance part, which will facilitate financing. From there, I think we're going to see with electric vehicles, literally less moving parts. Ford Motor Company is called Ford Motor Company. They make engines, and then they assemble using subcomponents, which is why Tesla really scares the OEMs, because they're like, wow, if there's no engine, like, what do we do? We're not... General Motors. We're not Ford Motor. There is no motor. It's, it's electric. So much simpler devices, lighter weight, and then higher utilization. I actually do believe that those costs come down significantly. But the single biggest cost is the human. Um, and that has a lot of social implications, uh, like a ton. And I think that's our pride number one barrier, uh, is being comfortable with computers driving themselves. Wonderful. And with that, we are out of time. So I would ask everybody to join me in thanking our fantastic panel.